The scripture for today's sermon comes from Matthew 4, 1 through 4. The word of God speaks to us. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, church. My name is Bryce Johnson. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I am a leader and um, actually a pastoral resident here. And it's a joy and honor to be here. It was actually two years ago this weekend um, that we, my family and I drove um, eight hours and came to come visit uh, this fledgling church. Now, we're meeting at a barn um, and just to see, hey, what's, what's going on here? And, um, and we jumped into a two-year program. And it's been a joy and honor um, and really a privilege for us to pour our lives in with you guys for the last year and a half. Um, I want to take a moment and just acknowledge the kids that are in this room. Um, man, we are so happy and joyful and honored uh, to get to worship with you guys. Um, and we love you guys and glad you guys are here with us. Well, for the last few weeks, we've been walking through a series that we've called Rhythms of Grace. And what we're doing is we're looking at these historic practices that the church um, has observed throughout, throughout its history and that the church continues to observe. Practices through which God actually imparts his grace to us. The practices or, or rhythms, if you will, that tether our lives to God and to each other. And they, they help guard us from the ways in which the world is actually deforming us and, and speaking lies to us. And they help form us more and more into the image of Jesus. And the rhythms of grace, not because we do them so that God stays happy with us, but through them, they're invitations to receive grace from God and to grow in grace and love and maturity. There's this, there's this scene in um, the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lion, the Wish, and the Wardrobe where um, the, the ice begins to melt um, and one of the first people to emerge is Father Christmas. And Father Christmas uh, shows up to the Pavensky children um, and to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and he's doling out gifts. He's got gifts because that's what Father Christmas or Santa Claus does. And, and there's this thing that he says to, um, to the kids right before, as he's giving them the gifts. He says, hey, these are not toys. They're tools. These are not toys to just play with for a season or just trinkets to play with. But they're actually tools. And so wield them properly. And that's... That's what these rhythms of grace are. They're, they're, they're not just things that God gives us as like, hey, here's this fun thing to look at for a while and then keep going on. They're actually tools that he gives us to give us more of himself and to help us grow together. And this morning, we're going to look at these practices called fasting and solitude. Now, for many of us, you hear fasting and solitude and, and maybe you've had a background with it, but, but maybe you haven't. And maybe you think of, monks in monasteries, you know, just sitting, doing ascetic lives, just away from the world. Um, or, or you think that this is what super holy Christians do. 
not the average Christian, not, 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 not you or I, but, but those who really want to step it up a notch, or those who are like varsity level Christians. But for, for you and me, for the average one of us, I don't, know if, I don't know if we need to do this. For some of you still, the idea of fasting and solitude seems completely foreign. You've, you've never even thought about doing it. Um, in fact, you might wonder if you've stumbled into a cult. The answer is yes. You can pass forward your debit cards, Kool-Aid's in the back, and uh, you can go from there. Um, joke, by the way. Um, listen, we're, we're going to be looking at these practices that the church is called spiritual disciplines, and we're looking specifically at the life and ministry of Jesus. And, and here's the main takeaway for today. God gives us the gifts of fasting and solitude to give us more of himself. God gives us these gifts of fasting and solitude to give us more of himself. And, and it's true of all the rhythms of grace. For all of them, God gives us more of himself. But we're going to look specifically how God does that through these twin disciplines of fasting and solitude. Now, let, let me go ahead and say right up front, I recognize that I'm preaching on fasting on solitude um, on the Sunday right before uh, we invite you to join us for a picnic right after service, right? And so, so I recognize the incredible irony, right? Like we're, we're, we're definitely not going to be fasting or practicing solitude at Kimball Park. Um, and so I blame it on the preaching team. You can blame it on the preaching team. Um, but unless you feel incredibly compelled by the Spirit to start this this afternoon, please join us uh, at, at the park. All right, so if you've got a copy of the scriptures, uh, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 4, which is where we're going to be. Now, right at the end of the previous chapter of Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. He's baptized and he comes out of the water and a voice from heaven comes down and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And what we have right there is the endorsement, the approval of God the Father on Jesus. It's actually, this, this launches Jesus' ministry. And what do you think the first thing is that Jesus would do. In fact, what would you do if God had just given you his public endorsement? See, if, if, if I'm being honest, I'd march right out of the water and go straight into Jerusalem and just start doing miracles, just casting out demons, just healing people, doing all these things to capitalize on the momentum, right? Got to capitalize on, on, on this, is, this is peak, prime, ministry season. But what does Jesus do instead? Well, let's look at it. If you have uh, your Bibles, Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came. The first thing Jesus does is Jesus actually goes into the wilderness. Now, that word wilderness is this Greek word, eremos, and, and it can be translated a variety of ways. It's often, uh, for this story, it's translated wilderness or desert, but it can also mean a lonely place or a desolate place or the quiet place. See, the first thing that Jesus does right after his inaugural event, the first thing he does in his ministry is to go and be alone. Now, that seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? It's and it's because we have this warped understanding of what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. 
we're often looking at what can we do or what are the things that we have done. And so as we consider our walk with Jesus, we look at things like how many times did I, pr- how many times did I read my Bible and pray this week? How many times did I go to church this month? How much did I give? In what ways did I serve? And we like to gauge our relationship this way because it's easy to quantify. We have these metrics that we can measure. Okay, I'm doing all these things. I've checked these boxes and thus I must be good. I must be okay. And not that these things aren't important. Reading your Bible and praying are incredibly important. Serving and giving are important to your discipleship. But what Jesus is modeling for us is that more important than doing is being. And this isn't just an isolated incident for Jesus. In fact, if you want a fun and maybe exhausting exercise, as you're reading through the life of Jesus, as you're reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just, just make a note of every time Jesus goes off on his own. Jesus goes away from the crowds. He separates from his disciples. He goes and is by himself. It's often this word, ramos, the same word. And it's usually when he's the busiest. Not, not when he's got a chunk of time. It's usually when he's the busiest, when he's the most overwhelmed. Jesus goes off to a solitary place and he slips away and is by himself. All the introverts in the room are like, amen. I get it. Jesus gets me. But, but Jesus isn't just getting away to, or, or Jesus is getting away to recharge, but he doesn't, he doesn't do it in the ways that you and I might do it, right? Often for me, when I think about recharging, I think of, man, sleeping in or binging Stranger Things Volume 2 or another glass of wine. But Jesus would frequently peel away from the noise and crowd so that he could pray. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time on prayer. Derek's going to cover that next week. But a large portion of solitude is actually prayer. And prayer, at its base level, a large part of it is communing with God. And so hear me, solitude is when we get away to get with God. We get away to get with God. It's not primarily about being alone. It's primarily about being with God and being filled in him. Because here's the thing, God actually likes us and wants, wants us to spend time with him. He invites us to himself. In fact, one of the hardest things to do these days is to actually be alone. Am I right? Any, any parents in the room feel me? Right? The, the bathroom's not even safe anymore. <laughs> We're never really alone these days because we have this rectangular piece of metal and glass on our person at all times. Right? And this actually keeps us connected and engaged at all times. In fact, some of you have it in your hands right now. I see you. And they keep us engaged at all times. And so Netflix and Disney Plus and Facebook and Instagram keep us engaged in such a way that we're never fully alone, that we're never not engaging. And as we engage in all these distractions and, and all these other things, we often find that we're often too busy to do other things. We're often too busy or too engaged to do even base things, basic things like commune with God. So we filled our lives and our minds with, with noise and other distractions and things on our calendar and so much, so many things that take up our time, so much to the point that we assume that God is silent. And then we feel disconnected to God. And so we hope that church will provide us 
a hit of God, right, to get us through the next Sunday. Or, our, or we have um, prayer times that, that are interrupted uh, by the notifications on our phone. Or we half-heartedly read our Bibles as our minds are on our screaming kids or the next thing that we've got to get to. And could it be that the problem is not a lack of God's presence? Could it be that the problem is not a lack of God's presence, but a lack of our own? Could it be that God speaks? We just, we just have other noise, other things drowning him out. Hear me, I, I'm, I'm not saying that if you, if you go away by yourself and sit by yourself, that you will hear the audible voice of God. But I think you will be better situated to hear him speak through his word. Now, maybe you're thinking, why do I have to be alone? I mean, aren't we made for community, Bryce? Didn't you just preach a sermon last week on why we need community? And you're right, we're, we're not made to be alone. In fact, Jesus saved us, not so that we could be on our own, but he saved us to a people. But what we're drawing is distinction here is between isolation versus solitude. See, there's a difference between isolation and solitude. Isolation is when you get away from people, remove yourself in really unhealthy ways. Whereas solitude is about actually, not primarily about being alone, but about engaging with God. When we're isolated, we're actually painting a big bullseye on our back for the enemy attacks. We're opening us, ourselves up for attack. But solitude, on the other hand, is opening ourselves up to commune with the Lord. See, community is a gift from the Lord and is a good and right gift. But solitude actually invites us to look past the gift to the giver of the good gift. Maybe you're saying that that's... That's great, Bryce. I see it. I, I recognize it's a good thing, but I don't know if you know my schedule. I've got a really demanding job. I've got all these things I need to get to. Many of you are parents with kids who take up every minute of your waking time. <laughs> We're living through this right now with an infant who's not sleeping. Some of you have calendars full of commitments and, and things to go to and things to get to. And so getting away for an afternoon or an evening or even a quiet 10 minutes with you and your Bible just feels like an impossibility. I get it. I feel it. One of the things I was struck this, this, this week as I was looking at Jesus' own life is how incredibly busy he was. In fact, if you read, we just, we just spent a year studying the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1 is essentially Jesus' first day on the job. So he comes back from, the, from uh, the wilderness, from fasting, and he spends all day teaching, and he's doing miracles. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He spend, stays all night casting out demons. And day two, do you know what he does? He wakes up super early to go get away and pray. That's because Jesus recognized his own need for it. I was reminded of Jesus' own rhythm of when he had no time, when he was the most overwhelmed, is when he would spend all night praying or wake up early to get away and pray. Henry Nowen is this priest and, and uh, this philosopher, and, and he said, he has this quote that I think is so many, I can't say it better myself, so I'm going to read it. He says, without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. Now pause there and, and, and let that sink in. 
Henry's not, not mincing any words. He says, without solitude, it's virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. Not to live any life, but to live a spiritual life. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside some time to be with God and listen to him. Now, we understand this at a basic level with our relationships, don't we? Like if Robin and I, Robin's my wife, if Robin and I never spent any time, just the two of us, if we never just sat on the couch and discussed our hopes and our fears and our secrets and our longings, if we, were, if we never spent time alone just to be a married couple, our marriage would suffer it might even wither away, right? If we, if we never saw the value of it and worked towards it. But we make that, we, we make it work, right? We, we put the kids down even after hard days and we sit down and we make the time because we know how critical it is to our marriage and our love. And the same can be said for our relationship with God. Now here's the thing. Relation, relational time is incredibly inefficient time. Right? You sit around and you share stories and you share anecdotes and you could spend all day with someone. Spend all day with someone and walk away and not remember most of the things you talked about. Right? You, you, you remember a comment or an anecdote. But it's in these, it, it's, it's the, accu the accumulation of this time and these moments and these experiences that actually build a relationship. They actually are the foundation of relationship. And when we don't practice this, we actually reap the consequences. And so we feel distant from God, and we end up living off of someone else's spirituality or a podcast or a quick devotional on our way out the door. And we lose sight of who we are, and we become people who are consumed by anxiety and exhaustion. And so we turn to other things to fix that anxiety and exhaustion. Things like the newest season of whatever's on, or another glass of wine, or porn, or social media, or even vacations. And we become prime targets for the enemy to attack us. Now, now hear me. I'm not saying that God won't love you if you don't spend time with him. Listen, we have a good and gracious God who loves us despite our faults, despite our best efforts, and despite the ways in which we fail. But hear me, if you actually want a relationship that flourishes and thrives, solitude is an invitation from God to himself. It's an invitation to deeper intimacy. It's an, it's an invitation to know him more. So solitude is when we get away to get with God. But not only was Jesus alone with the Father, right? In this text this morning, he was actually doing something. He was fasting. And so go back to the text, Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 2, it says, And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Makes sense. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And the tempter or Satan, comes to Jesus and says, hey, you're hungry. Why don't you turn these stones into some bread you can eat? Now, for so long, this verse, or this temptation, 
felt so confusing to me. The devil is tempting Jesus to eat, to, to satisfy this need that he has, this desire. Is, is, is that a bad thing? I mean, what's going on? The Bible says Jesus was hungry. It feels like the devil's just trying to help him out. I mean, is bread bad for you? All the gluten-free folks in the room are like, yes, amen, I knew it. It's in the Bible. Bread is devil food. But the key to understanding all these temptations is to actually see the motive behind the temptation. See, the devil isn't just saying like, hey, here's my schemes, eat, eat bread. He's saying, hey, if you're the son of God, why are you hungry? Hey, if you're the son of God, why don't you just satisfy your appetite? Why don't you get what you want right now? Why would you allow yourself to feel this negative feeling? Why would you deprive yourself? You can do it right now. Now, before we move forward, stop and think about that for just a moment. Is that not the spirit of our age, of our time right now? See, a prevailing message of our time is don't deprive yourself of anything you desire. If you want it, go get it. Don't stop yourself. In fact, it's seen as repressive or, and regressive to deny yourself, to hold yourself back from any desires. We're a culture that lusts after immediate gratification. I want it and I want it now. And so we see it in our buying power and the success of Amazon and the rising levels of debt. We, we see it in the pursuit of sensuality and chasing whatever our eyes or our hearts or our minds or our bodies desire, whether it be people or things. And we even see it in food. Because there are few things that drive us as much as hunger and the desire for food. Right? There, there, there seem to be few things as strong as cravings. It's not just for the pregnant mamas in the room. Cravings are real, right? One of the, it's a joke, but not a joke. It's a real thing in our, host, in our house. Often after we put our kids to bed, my wife and I will sit on the couch and look at each other. And one of us, usually me, is like, Brahms? Right? Like, I mean, some soft serve ice cream. Like, it's only $1.29. Right? It's not breaking the bank. Got this. Just, just, just need a hit of sugar. Right? Just need a hit of sugar. And rather than, one, meeting that elsewhere, or better yet, just saying, probably don't need that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even hungry. I just need some creamy, creamy dairy. <laughs> and one of us will usually be like, well, do you want me to say no? <laughs> like, I will if you want me to say no. Right? We've got this craving, and, and I want it, and I want it now, and so I'll go and drive and get it right now. Satan comes to Jesus and says, why in the world would you not immediately satisfy this desire you have, this longing that you have? Gratify yourself right now. In fact, you could turn these very stones into delicious, satisfying carbs. And watch how Jesus responds. And the tempter came and said to him, being Jesus, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he, being Jesus, answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, 
but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, this is not some Jesus juke, right? Jesus is not just pulling a, a, a Christian line, some Christianese on Satan. He's not just trying to sound holy. Listen, Jesus is saying, it isn't just bread that sustains me. It isn't just physical food that sustains me. What actually sustains me and nourishes me is God's word. In other words, what actually controls Jesus is not his impulses or his desires. He's controlled by God's word. Pause. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing? We think that our greatest need, the thing that we can't live without, is food. And Jesus comes along and says, hey, if you're going to have any sort of real life, like, like real substantial life, you don't just need food. Like, like you need it. You don't, just, you don't just need food. You need to be sustained by God. And this actually begs the question, if what our souls truly crave and need is God himself and his word, do we hunger for God? Do we hunger for God? Do we feel hunger for God? Do we hunger for God the way we hunger for a cheeseburger or, or a quinoa salad, if, if that's you? Do we have an appetite for God and his word? Pastor John Piper, he wrote a, a, an incredible, a really good book on fasting. And in it, he says, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. It's not his enemies, but it's his gifts because we fill ourselves up on his gifts. See, similar to the ways in which we overwhelm ourselves with distractions and noise and calendar events to drown out God, there are so many things, good things, good gifts from God that numb our appetite for God. He says we can nibble on trivial things so much that we numb our appetite for God. It's there. It's there. But we try to fill it other ways. It's like, it's like if you've ever been to a Tex-Mex restaurant and you sit down and you place your order and immediately what do they bring? Chips and cake. If they bring you chips and cake without you asking, you're at a good or questionable place. They bring you chips and salsa, right? Sometimes creamy jalapeno. And so you're just sitting there, just waiting for your food to arrive. You're just chatting. And you just dip your chip in and eat it. You reach for the next one. You go to the next one. And if the basket empties, they'll bring you another one. And you fill yourself up on chips. And so that by the time that they bring your real meal, you've already lost, lost your appetite. You've already satisfied your hunger, right? You're no longer hungry. You may pick it up, but you've already dulled your appetite with something less than. Something less than. And see, we're prone to fill our appetites with lesser things. We nibble on food, but we also, we nibble on family. We nibble on Netflix and career and our marriage and vacation and concerts. And all the while, we don't feel our anorexic souls crying out for God. We don't feel the ways in which our souls are craving and crying out for food from God. 
Friends, do we feel that? Do, do we even really believe that? See, what fasting does is it helps put a check on our endless nibbling. It puts a check on our endless nibbling so that we can realize where our hunger really is. And it highlights, it, it exposes, it, it accentuates our true hunger. Hear, hear me say this. Food is a good thing. We, we break bread. We, we, we build community around meals. The Bible says food is a gift. It says to eat food to the glory of God. I mean, Chick-fil-A chicken biscuits are a gift from God. Am I right? It is a good thing. And yet rather than being gifts that we enjoy... We, food often consumes us. In our day, it's, it's a compulsion. It's, it, we confuse appetite with hunger, and cravings are always satisfied, and they're always satisfied now. So how, how often do we eat our feelings? We drown our sorrows in a bottle of wine or, or a pint of Ben and Jerry's, or we, or we, we just soothe our emotions or our feelings was just something. At the same time, we have unhealthy views of food that stem from body image issues and the ways in which our culture worships the ideal body. We have this weird relationship with food. And into this dysfunction, the Bible offers us the gift of fasting. Now, generally speaking, fasting is giving up food so that we're fed supernaturally by God. And God wants us to feed on him. He wants us to feed us. He wants to feed us and wants to fill us. See, fasting is, we fast so that we can feast on God. We fast so that we can feast on God. Not because, we, we don't fast because we're masochists. We, we don't fast because we're trying to make ourselves feel uncomfortable. But to remind ourselves that we're not driven primarily by our physical appetites. We have a hunger that's deeper, that can, that can only be satisfied by God himself. And it's so when we enter, it's when we enter into fasting and we, we deprive ourselves of food for a moment and channel that appetite and that hunger and that desire towards God and his word and prayer that we find in God a source of sustenance beyond food. And it's when we do that that we actually start to understand and believe the Bible when Jesus says things like, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We find out as John 4, 32 says, where Jesus says that he has food and meat to eat that the world does not know about. Or Matthew 6, where Jesus says life is more than food. It's in those moments that we recognize what David says in Psalm 34, where he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. See, he satisfies in a deep way. And in case you miss it in Psalm 34, it's actually good. He's actually good. See, similar to fasting, solitude invites us to temporarily refrain from a good thing. Temporarily refrain from a good thing so that we can have the ultimate thing. They invite us to look to the giver of gifts over the gifts. We fast so that we can feast on God. And so these disciplines help us to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord. But they also strengthen us with grace against the enemy. 
They also strengthen us with grace against the enemy. See, for so long, I read the story of Jesus in the wilderness, and I read it as one where the devil pounced on Jesus when he was the weakest, right? Jesus is alone. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. I mean, I know how I feel like when lunch is two hours late, right? I can't imagine the hangry Jesus is feeling after 40 days. And, and isn't it just like the devil to attack us when we're at our lowest, when we're most vulnerable, when we're most, um, when we're weakest, but I had missed a critical, crucial part of the story. There's a crucial line in this text. Let's look at the text again. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So I don't know if you caught that, but the Holy Spirit of God was actually leading Jesus to be tempted by the devil. Now, there's a lot to unpack there. It's more than I've got time for right now. But notice, if you will, when the devil is allowed to attack Jesus, to tempt Jesus. It's after Jesus has been led into the wilderness by himself. And it's after he's fasted 40 days. See, Jesus wasn't at his weakest when the enemy came at him. But Jesus was actually at his strongest. Jesus was actually at his strongest Dallas Willard has written this incredible book on spiritual disciplines. And in it, he says, in that desert solitude, Jesus fasted for more than a month. Then, and not before, Satan was allowed to approach him with his glittering proposals of bread, notoriety, and power. Only then was Jesus at the height of his strength. Friends, do, do, we, do we see fasting in solitude and disciplines as sources of strength? See, I wonder how many of us have succumbed to temptation because we hadn't kept ourselves strengthened by fasting and time with the Lord. So many of us rely on willpower to try to fight temptation, don't we? We fall into sin, and so we swear, never again, I'll never again do it. And we try to will ourselves into holiness and faithfulness and righteousness by our own strength. And fasting and solitude fill us with someone else's strength. They fill us with someone else's strength. See, as we get away to get with God and as we fast to feast on him and his word, we're filled with his very presence. As we press into the Lord, we deflect the lies of the world about who we are and what we're called to and we're reminded of our identity and our calling as spirit-filled children of God. And it's in the seeming weakness of solitude and fasting that we learn to, as Ephesians 6 says, put on the whole armor of God so that we can withstand the schemes of the enemy. See, fasting and solitude fill us with strength from the Lord so that in the day of temptation we can overcome, not by our power, but by his strength. Friends, Jesus himself fasted and went away by himself. And I don't think we're any stronger than our Savior. Church, do you see how these things are actually gifts of grace that strengthen us? They're rhythms of grace because as we walk in them, God actually grants us more of himself. He gives us more grace. He gives us more of himself. They're not boulders meant to weigh us down. It's just another thing, another checklist. It's just another thing that you have to do. The invitations to walk in the way of the Lord, to walk in the way of Jesus and who he has called you to be. 
And so what does this look like? I've got, I've got four practical steps for those of us who maybe this is, this is a new territory. First is start small. Start small. And so if you've never fasted before, it's probably not a good idea to try a 40-day fast. Right? Maybe do one meal. Maybe, maybe fast from something like social media or, um, or something else that takes up your time. Maybe practice solitude by waking up before the rest of your house does and, and having a quiet time with the Lord. Start small. Second, make a plan. There's a saying that if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. If you fail to plan, you plan to fail. So plan on when you'll practice solitude. Maybe it's at a certain time every morning or, and plan on having your Bible and a real paper so you're not distracted by notifications on your phone. If you're going to fast, decide on what day and when and, and how you're going to break the fast. This whole week as I'm preparing this sermon on fasting on solitude, I was like, man, I really should fast this week. And then yesterday came and I was lamenting with my wife. I was like, man, I, I really wanted to this week. I, I just never did. She said, yeah, it's because you didn't make a plan. You didn't decide, hey, this is when I'm going to do it and then stick with it. Make a plan. Third, don't go about this alone. Now, you may say, wait a minute, Bryce, I thought solitude uh, meant no other people. And what I actually mean is, hey, invite someone else to do this along with you. So maybe it's someone from your discipleship group. Maybe it's your best friend or your spouse. Invite someone to do it with you at the same time. So maybe it's your roommate, and one of you, and you get up in the morning to do solitude, and one of you takes the front porch, and one of you takes the back porch. Maybe you both decide to fast all day on Friday and have a meal on Saturday. Don't go about this alone. And finally, actually spend a good portion of your time with God. Every second of every moment of your fasting and your solitude doesn't need to be you on your face praying and reading your Bible. But if you're not actually spending a portion of this pressing into the Lord, then you're just doing what the world already does. They just call it mindfulness and intermittent fasting. And those have no real spiritual value because they don't have Jesus. Spend a good portion of your time with God. Friends, it's so easy to hear a sermon like this. It's so easy to preach a sermon like this and make it feel like, okay, you've got these things that you've got to do, and then God will be happy with you. You've got these things to do, to, and make sure you figure it out so that you can be right with God. And listen, if, if you come away from this feeling more burdened than encouraged, then I have not done my job. Would you hear this as invitations? Invitations to grow in the Lord. Invitations to strengthen you and equip you for every good work. Fasting and solitude, friends, they press us into the Lord and they give us more of him. And they strengthen us. But they also point us to a future day. They point us to a future day, what the Bible calls a new creation. When Jesus comes and restores and makes all things new. And he comes and makes all things new. And so in new creation, when Jesus returns, there's no need for faith because our faith will be sight. Jesus will be there. And when Jesus comes back and makes all things new, there won't be any need for food because Jesus sustains us. Jesus tells us, he says, in the new heavens and new earth, there's no eating and drinking and giving away for marriage. It's because they're, they're shadows, they're pointing to something. 
Friends, as we fast, we look forward to the day when Jesus comes and makes all things new. And we will be very much in the presence of our Savior. Friends, would, 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 we, would we hear this invitation and press into the Lord and look for the day when he comes back and makes all things new? Would you pray with me?